2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only history of the devil. My name is Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my partner in Diabology, one Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you this evening? Yeah, um, I'm doing all right. Uh, there's lots of churchy stuff going on at the moment. We're electing a new bishop in a week and a half. It's all very exciting over here. <laughs> I know that's what <laughs> most people exciting. say. They're like, how's your life? Well, we're electing a new bishop. I mean, I know that's what most people say, so... Just gonna say Sounds that. better than like electing the next president, for example. That's yeah. more positive than that. But it, yeah, I yeah, know it is. It is. Things are yeah. All will be well over here. Yeah. I, I yeah. I believe so. Um, yeah. How about yourself? How are you? Okay. Okay. It's the dark season. I don't know if it quite hits the same way in California, but it's so dark, so fast. It snowed here. It was snowing and sleeting tonight. It really, maybe it'll be a real winter. People are obsessed with the seasonality. They're like, it was flurrying in town and people had their cameras out taking videos. And I'm just like, we're all just so desperate for a normalcy that we're like, just like delighted by the most basic weather phenomena. It's really, I don't know what to make of that, but it's a thing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not like that here. Uh, We do notice that it gets darker sooner. But I am wearing a sweater right now, and it's aspirational. I definitely do not need to be wearing a sweater. It is currently, oh, wow, this is embarrassing. Inside my unit, which is south-facing, lots of big windows, so which is wonderful. I'm very lucky. But it means that it's 73.9 degrees inside right now. There's no nice. need for the sweater. I just need the cozy vibes. So I'm basically <laughs> one of those people who is, it's the equivalent of filming the first snow sleet of the season. That's totally what I'm doing. So, Yeah. Yeah. You need like a pumpkin spice latte and you'll be set. Oh, yeah. Uh, I believe you'll find it's a PSL, but um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know. <laughs> I know. But anyway, so we're, we are gathered today to talk about... <laughs> Dearly the beloved. Conclusion, dearly beloved. Well, we're gathered here today to talk about the horrendous ending of Thomas Mann's 1947 Dr. Faustus. And two episodes ago, we did the first part of the discussion where we talked about the first half. We won't talk about the entire second half of the novel. It's very long, but we will talk about some key highlights towards the end. And I shared some of these with Travis in English translation, and I was rereading that too uh, just a little bit ago. But yeah, like, what did you, before we get into some of the big questions, like, what was your first reaction to reading these, this part of the novel? Well, I would say it was a much easier read. Last time you assigned me basically middle English to read. They were trying to echo mm-hmm. the style of the German. And yeah. so it was a much easier approach. But you also, I will have to say, you picked out some really cheery bits for me. I think you... you yeah. Yeah, you picked out yeah. just the happy stuff for me to read this time. So, um, But uh, there were some really beautiful moments, which was interesting given that it's in translation. So kudos to whoever did this. I was... I was... Like my our last episode, I had moments of really enjoying the prose. Um, and so that was nice. There were some, there were several moments that sort of drew my eye. We'll get to those later. Um, but yeah, we had some, we had, two, basically you asked me to read two death scenes. One of a, ch- we started with the death of a beloved child and it was, could have edged on melodrama. I'm curious about your reading experience of that. Um, but for me, it was I felt it maybe because of you know my own life. Uh, it felt poignant. It was um, yeah. oh totally beautifully I described. Mean, I was reading that scene when my son was experiencing severe pain from an ear infection. So that's so the scene we're talking about is after many horrible things happening in the life of Adrian. Our, our hero he is sort of he's he's gone through like a failed romance his like sort of platonic love interest best friend 
master violinist Rudy uh, Schwertfeger has basically won a courtship contest for this woman that they're both pursuing. And then he is brutally gunned down in a tram by a spurned ex-lover. And like the relationship with the artist they were both pursuing is, is over. This close friendship is over. And we're in the last phases of Adrian Leverkusen's like sort of productive phase and his, his last phases of his life, basically as a, as a sort of sentient, fully rationally sort of present, mentally competent person. And the last, like one of the things that is part of, as you may recall, the devil's deal or the devil's terms with Adrian from the scene we talked about in the last episode is that he can't love anyone. And, the last sort of major love of his life is his nephew, who's like this four-year-old Nepomuk or Echo, as he's called. And he's kind of like this beatific, angelic, and literally compared to Christ as like a, the infant Christ uh, throughout. And he contracts, he's sent to um, Adrian's like sort of, Adrian's like house that he's lived in for years with uh, that's run by the, the Schweigestil family, it, like sort of outside of Munich in like rural Bavaria to recuperate from an illness. And his mom's also recuperating from an illness. And then he contracts spinal meningitis and dies in an extremely painful and horrible fashion. And yeah, it's very hard to read. And at the very beginning of the novel, uh, Severus Zeitblom references that this is coming. He doesn't explain exactly what's going to happen, but you know that a child is going to go through something horrible at the end of this. And so you, I, you kind of had that hanging over you the entire time as you were reading through. Um, but the part about it that I wanted to sort of talk about a little bit with you right now is Severus, the, the narrator, the, the sort of putative biographer of, of Adrian Leverkuhn is there for towards the end of this child's life. And this really just is like Adrian's had all this loss, but this is like really like sort of the last straw. And he's like cursing out the devil. And he's like, really, he thinks it's the devil has, has done this. The devil has taken this child. And one of the things he says after sort of like cursing and berating the devil and saying that like, my one comfort is that he's going to be in heaven and you can't get to him. Like that'll be my only comfort in hell. And you can sort of see he's sort of resigned to going to hell but he tells uh, Zeitblom that he's going to take away the Ninth Symphony. I'll, I'll, I'll read the quote really quickly. He says to, to uh, Zeitblom, I find that it is not to be. What, Adrian, is not to be? The good and noble, he answered me. What we call the human, although it is good and noble. What human beings have fought for and stormed citadels with the ecstatics exultantly announced. That is not to be. It will be taken back. I will take it back. I don't quite understand, dear man. What will you take back? The Ninth Symphony, he replied. And then no more came, though I waited for it. And I was just like, to be in like the this, this state of grief and, and shock and, and rage. Like the thing, the sort of like the, the main gesture is to say, I'm going to undo Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Like that's what, that's what I'm going to devote the rest of my life to doing, is writing a piece of music that undoes the ninth symphony which almost seems like like sort of like grant like megalomaniacal megalomaniacally like almost comical like what you were saying it's kind of overdone but like what a reaction like what, what you know what did you think when you read that i think for me having an aesthetic reaction to an, an, a reaction of erasure and destruction and undoing made sense coming from an artist, from a musician. It felt uh, surprising to a certain extent. I mean, you know, it at first it made no sense. What are you going to do? I'm going to take away the Ninth Symphony. How do you undo? <laughs> how do you take away something that already exists yeah, in the exactly. world? It's a gesture. It yeah. sounded nonsensical at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I said, "Well, who is this character? Who who's speaking here? What is he going through?" Uh, I appreciated the gesture, I guess, of having been robbed of 
the most beautiful relationship he has of wanting other people to feel deeply in their bones what it is like to lose the most beautiful thing, the thing that is full of hope and that symbolizes humanity, which the Ninth Symphony does for him and for others more broadly, perhaps. Uh, so it was, it took me a second. It was jarring at first, but I, I feel like I started to make sense of it. Um, what about for you? Yeah, I was I was a bit confused. I mean, obviously, I'm not like a musical virtuoso or like not even we'll, we'll erase that. I like feel like a little bit at sea with classical music sometimes, like familiar with the Ninth Symphony a little bit. But I was I was like looking into it a, a, a tiny bit and I found that the Ninth Symphony is like sort of a late Beethoven piece. It's his most famous piece. And it's sort of, some people see it as um, reaffirmation of kind of the optimism and revolutionary qualities of the revolutionary age, the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, this sort of stuff. And it's happening in a time when that's all being rolled back, sort of like the Conference of Vienna, the sort of reestablishment of conservative power across Europe. And so it's sort of, in the sense that I think Adrian's talking about, like this sort of revolutionary optimism that's joyful and struggle, but ultimately like life affirming and like sort of declares that there's a purpose to the universe and a purpose to human life. He's yeah. He's like, I'm going to take that away. Also, it's interesting in the context of Nazi Germany, the ninth was sort of appropriated as a symbol of German culture and as the superiority of German culture in certain films, it's like counterposed directly to American jazz, which was racialized in the Nazi imagination. And so it's sort of like this, it's like this this woman in this propaganda film like is a German immigrant living in America, hears the ninth and then hears like jazz on the radio and like returns to Germany determined to be a, a mother to more German children, like because the, the superiority of the culture. And so I wonder if that's also part of the erasure. It's not just the sort of the Schiller Beethoven optimism, but it's also like it's also looking at how that can be so deformed in the Nazi context. And I wonder if that's also part of it. Of course, this, this scene with Nepomuk or Echo's death, it takes place like years before the Nazi rise to power. But like, obviously the book in this, in the frame of the novel is being written during the Nazi, the, the last days of the Nazi regime. And Thomas Mann in real life is writing it at the end of the Nazi regime. So it's like hard not to also yeah. see that there. But... When, you, when you were talking about the, um, the expectation of the child's death, from very early in the novel that you're kind of waiting for this event to happen it there was also an escape hatch here that i noticed so uh he had in this faustian story right he is clear from the bargain that he's not going to be able to love a woman and he just thought well maybe if i have a child maybe if i have a son who is male I'll be able to get around this. And he yeah. kind of knows that's not quite, I think it's a vain hope that he, that he holds, but he falls completely in love yeah. with this kid. Um, yeah. yeah. And like, and like everyone does, it's like, that's, what's also interesting. It's like, it's not like it's just him. Like everyone's like, this child is like, is perfect. And everyone in this village yeah. loves this child. Everyone loves this child. So, yeah. But yeah, he thought like maybe that, that wasn't the same as like erotic love, obviously. And it wasn't this, you know, it was this familial, more parental role, quasi parental, yeah. you know, avuncular role. And even that is in his mind, like was too much for the devil to be able to bear. So, yeah. And like there are, we can go into details. We, I, I won't, but the next piece that he writes is, is like Dr. Faust's lament. Um, the Vea Klaga, Dr. Fausti. And that's where he, and, and in certain chapters, this is what's weird. This is what's weird about this, this novel is that it's Mon writing a novel about made up pretend pieces of music for large sections <laughs> of it. <laughs> so that's like, and he got, he like, he got schooling and training in music and like, I think he was like a German cultural giant. So he obviously just, that's probably just went with the territory in like the 1920s. It's just like knowing a lot about German classical music. It was pretty mainstream to do that, but he, you know, but you're reading a lot about imaginary pieces of music, 
There's also real a lot of discussions of real music in the novel, and there's nice playlists that you can that you can listen to that go through every song that is mentioned in the novel, which is pretty cool. I appreciate the people who curate those playlists, and I've I've made use of it. Um, but in any case, and in actually, we were just talking about Beethoven versus jazz and how the Nazis counterpose those things. It was listening to some of the Beethoven from pieces that are mentioned in the novel that I heard like how close jazz and elements of classical music were in a way that I'd heard like as a young person, but like it was very, like very, very, very apparent in a way that had never been apparent to me before how, how much overlap there was in some of those moments. So anyway, but yeah, I can't totally get into how technically the Vea clog, the, the lament is undoing it, but that's the idea it is. And I, and I thought you'd be interested in this. It is like kind of a, apophatic or negative theological undoing or unsaying and of course to take it away in that sort of method is to pay tribute to it in a certain way like you're this it's like a pretty dramatic erasure um but yeah it's it's a little bit above my pay grade to be able to sort of break down how this imaginary piece of music actually accomplishes it (laughs) and anyway (laughs) i won't detain us too much with it but that's it's supposed to the second question i have here is maybe a bit too abstract Maybe we can jump to the part where he the he breaks down. Um, yeah, sure. Does that make sense? Okay. And then we'll be work our way back to number two. So you said that we see two deaths. I asked you to read about two deaths in this novel. Before the second death, which is, of course, Adrian's, we have a moment that is supposed to be analogous to the moment in the original Faust story where Faust gets together with his friends and tells them about what happened. And they're like, but why didn't you go to the priest? Why didn't you do this and that? And he's like, it's too late. It's too late. It's too late. Maybe I'll be saved. I'm a, both a bad Christian and a good Christian, this sort of thing. And they, they have their last sort of their last party, their last somber party. And they go to bed and then Faust is torn limb from limb by the devil. And that's, that's how both the, the German Faust Buch and uh, the Marlowe more or less ends. Can you describe in your own words what we get instead of that literal evisceration and brutal dispatching of Dr. Faustus? What happens to Adrian that's supposed to be the analog for this? Well, the party that he's holding has a different purpose. He's meant to reveal this great work of music that he's been working on. That's a like a master kind of uh, It's the anti-Ninth Symphony. Yeah, it's the anti-Ninth yeah. Symphony, yeah. And it's this culmination of all this work that he's been doing. It includes, like the Ninth Symphony, it includes a chorus. And he's got a, a piano, some sort of keyboard instrument in this in this uh, home where he's going to invite everyone. And he invites, you know, the whole town and then some people who haven't seen him. People invite their friends. It sounds like it's a big to-do. Uh, people who want to rescue their reputations uh, show up trying to re-enter society. Uh, but he's meant to play some, give you some teasers of this new work that he's been doing. And instead, to the great consternation of Severus, our uh our narrator, our literary, you know, fictive biographer, uh, to his great consternation, he starts a monologue about confessing, a confession, really, um, of that he has made the deal with the devil, etc. And people start slowly kind of walking out. It's not clear if he has all of his wits about him. It seems like the ravings of a madman to some of the audience members, for sure. People don't know how to take it. There's a guy who thinks it's a poet in the audience, thinks that this is itself an artistic, it's some sort of like performance art that's happening. And he's like, yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. Um, But most people don't interpret it that way. And it's instead a kind of confession of his, um, that he has given up his soul in exchange for the power to, to make this work. Can I just say something about the guy who thinks it's a poem? Please. Uh, so this guy is Suhua. This guy is like this like ultra reactionary like romantic poet, and he's sort of like he's like sort of like a weird like awkward dude who'd be really into literature like in an undergrad program or something. Like he's like very loud and, and stentorian, 
and he is always saying these things. I, I turned, I changed my Twitter handle to to one of his outbursts because I think it's so funny. He's always like, "Yavol, yavol, man kann es sagen." You know, he oh, like, yeah. had like sort of punctuates these things with like these like, "Yes, yes, yes, it's beautiful, it's good, it's poetry." <laughs> he says something else. He says he's like he's like he's like, "Es ist schön, es hat Schönheit." <laughs> It's like it's beautiful. It's, it has beauty. This is beauty. Yes, this is God. Uh, he says like these really like bizarre, abstract, like humorously like ponderous things that are supposed to sound profound, but are like really stupid. God knows. I'm sure people have figured out who he's supposed to be in real life. But anyway, uh. did he strike you? I was wondering as a, you know, someone who never got beginning, got past beginning German. I was taught that Yavol is a very military sounding kind of thing yeah. that it's it's not a like certainly it's like a yes sir like absolutely in a like um, in that context and I I was wondering in the back of my mind if this is meant to have um, I don't know Nazi echoes um, we're not it's yeah. not set in that time period but as you said before we have that uh, in the frame story of the novel World War Two is is no, the context. But- but you were talking about how these people come to this this open this sort of opening revelation of the lamentation of Dr. Faust, Dr. Faustus, and the people who are coming are part of this cultural circle from Munich, and what the second half of the novel shows is how the defeat of World War One is like this catalyst for uh, irrationalist, like anti-enlightenment, proto-fascist like vogue among mm. the cultured the cultured disbelievers <laughs> to, to, to you know, go Friedrich Schleimacher for a second uh, it, it becomes co- like anti-rationalism phenomenology existentialism like these sorts of things become cool in a way that they were like becoming mainstreamed through people like Martin Heidegger in the Weimar Republic and were like sort of be- began to give cover to fascism and, and nazism and so yeah no he, that guy is like his poems are all about conquering the world in blood sweat and tears and it's very fascist yeah okay. so you're right it does have a sort of like kind of a military connotation or a militant connotation um so yeah anything else from that party scene that you wanted to bring out or yeah. discuss yeah i i mean like what's weird about the party scene is for me, like the question I had was looking at this as analogous to the scenes where Faust is torn literally limb from limb. What we have here is that happening in terms of your professional reputation. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting that that's how Mann figured this 20th century instantiation of the penalty that Dr. Faustus pays for his deal with the devil. Of course, and this is another question we can sort of that can kind of maybe interweave through what we say. Like, not a lot in the end as to whether there actually is a devil or there's a deal with the devil. To be, there's no confirmation or like disproving of that. We have what happens is Adrian keeps saying increasingly bizarre stuff. His story checks out with certain points and with the novel reports. But he starts to get really fantastical. He's talking about, like, the, the little mermaid coming to him and becoming his concubine. The little mermaid's son is the one who he confesses to killing through his basilisk gaze in a way that sort of seems to be recapitulating Echo's death. Of course, Echo's not his son, right? But, like, he's, mm-hmm. like, it's, like, a clue that, like, oh, he's, like, kind of, he's taking parts from his real life and putting them into these strange stories. The Little Mermaid has been a motif throughout the entire novel. It's some it's something he reflects on a lot, how she can't talk and how she has to experience all this pain when she puts on her false legs from like the the sort of the the uh, Hans Christian Andersen or Grimm story or wherever it comes from. The sort of the original folklore around it. Yeah. And he's like the, the novel's obsessed with this sort of pain that she goes through as she walks around. And like it's hard to sometimes tell if like he's identifying with the little mermaid. Like how the little, like, but he's, it's something, it's, you could write a book about the Little Mermaid in this book, basically. But he sees her as like this, this, almost like the way Helena Troy is in the other Faust stories. This becomes like his concubine. And he has a son, and then he confesses to killing his son. 
by just by proximity. He talks about his, it's his eyes. And he also one of the things that's really striking about the last scene of his sort of career, the death of a career, you know, <laughs> it's a novel. It's a, no, it's a, it's a novel. And I, I keep saying a novel of a career. That's actually what Mephisto is called. It's like a, it's a, it's a novel of a career is, is the subtitle of the book. This is also about a career, I would say, which I think is an interesting overlap point between the two novels. But he says that he, all of his inspiration for his music has come from the devil, that he has done like black magic and necromancy and stuff, but like he's hearing the music dictated by the devil. He's also hearing it di- sung by choruses of creepy little children who float around, who have yellow worms coming out of their nostrils as they speak mm. to him. Yeah, That's that was the point. People, start people left. Yeah, the the yeah. worms were were a turning point for a lot of people, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, "You you lost me with the worms coming out of children's eyes." It got really creepy. So I was thinking about when I first was thinking about how to talk about this, like this experience that is an experience that's happened, like in the periphery of my life, where people have like public mental breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Like, like that, like that, like that's, he's writing about that. And, and I was just, I thought it was a really interesting way to modernize, secularize, drop, re-dramatize this story for, for the 20th century. Like, instead of being physically broken apart, your public persona is, is, is vitiated in this way. Does that, does that make sense? Does that, is that, do you think that's the right way to make sense of this? I mean, I do. I think it tracks with, there's not a way to tell in that time and place. There wasn't apparently a way to tell a story that kept a kind of deal with the devil that people could nod along to and say, oh yeah, no, he, he definitely, this is, <laughs> this narrative makes sense in our cultural context that someone could encounter the devil, make a deal, have real skills from it, and then die physically at the end. It just... Um, so the adaptation and the, the move into mental illness as a way to deal with the supernatural elements of a deal with the devil certainly made sense. Now, the, but the more interesting part is that you're pointing to, I think, is the career part, uh, substitution for the self, that we are so heavily uh, capitalist that we identify with um, our center of our being. The first question you get asked at a cocktail party, what do you do? Um, yeah, felt yeah, right. yeah. felt live here, and that and yeah. the watching that kind of we talked earlier about um, the stripping away the undoing of the Ninth Symphony. Here we have a stripping and uh, a degradation of the self qua career self. The the um, the artist is right. degrading in a mental breakdown before our eyes. Yeah. He does eventually get to the piano. Um, he plays a dissonant chord and collapses. Is that right? And and starts screaming. Yeah. And starts screaming. Uh, that's true. Yeah. 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 Oof. It's horrible. And I will say, like when I was first thinking about it, I was thinking about the theme of shame and embarrassment as part of that dismembering of one's career and reputation. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, Adrian doesn't feel that shame himself. He doesn't seem to notice people leaving. He's so he's kind of so far gone that like the full desecration of his public persona and reputation is not hurting him, which is interesting. Obviously, like the the, the pain that the Faust figure feels in the earlier iterations is like that's his pain, whereas the shame isn't felt by him. It's felt by the people who love him. It's felt like Severus Zeitblom talks about how when Adrian starts talking to this 30 or so people who have gathered in this boarding house, this sort of nice boarding house to hear him talk. He feels he he's like sort of a kept participated in keeping Adrian sheltered. He's since, since Nepomuk's death. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, Oh, he kind of like, he's sort of listing a certain way. Oh, he's kind of slurring his words. He sort of never gets out. He only wears like one thing, all these eccentricities, and suddenly all of the weirdness of Adrian is apparent to him and he feels defensive and he feels profoundly embarrassed f- on behalf of his friend. And so, and, and so do other people who, who, lo- who love Adrian. It's funny, Adrian isn't allowed to love himself, but many people love him, you know, and he doesn't exactly love them back. 
because they would be dead, I guess. If <laughs> everyone who he loves dies, <laughs> but um, but uh, they are the, there are people who who really care for him. He has like uh, f- like Frau Schweigestil is like one of these people who cares for him, and there's this pair of women from the local community, the Munich area, who really care for him. Um, one of them is uh, Kunigunda, yeah, Kunigunda Rosenstiel, Meta Nackerde, Jeanette Schurl, and the, the Schweigerstil family. There's like this, like sort of, these like votaries, these, these devotees of Adrian's, they sort of surround him. He's surrounded by women at the piano. That's what, that's what Mon says. And they try to, they encircle him and they try to like, he's encircled by these women who are trying to protect him as he's going through this break, breakdown. And yeah, they're feeling the shame on his, like they're feeling shame and they're feeling protective of him. We, we get what Severus is going through and he feels shame. He feels touched because Adrian actually speaks kind of like, like reverently of their friendship. But like listening, he's just like waiting for Adrian to get to the music. He's like, if he could just start playing the music, everything would be okay. And he never, he never gets to play the music, you know? Mm-hmm. So, Do yeah. you think that we're also in that moment where he's surrounded by these protective women, are we foreshadowing his t- uh, breakdown and return to his own mother? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's right that it seems to have a connection. And this is something I realized as I was reading just before we got on that, that Frau Schweigestil, who's the woman who's basically boarded him for decades. Like he's lived in kind of isolation in the countryside for decades outside of Munich. And she's taken care of, she's fed him. I mean, he isn't, you know, in a way, not like he's a grown man, but like she cooks the meals, you know, she's the house, she's doing the housekeeping and her, and, the, and her family's there too, helping out too. And they live on this kind of nice, this nice rural property, farm property. But like, that's the mother he elects to have. Like that's his chosen mother. And in the novel, it's clear after Deitblom and Schild Knopp, another friend, like after three months after this breakdown and he's been institutionalized and has then returns back to uh, Frau Schweigestil's house they get they finally tell his mother like which seems crazy they're like well we wanted to wait to see if like things we want him to settle down we want him to stabilize a little before we yeah. tell him on because like it's not any better if we tell her now yeah was exactly that was, that, was a, that was a choice yeah but yeah <laughs> but they they uh what 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 Zeitblom says or Mon says is that that he, when his mother reappears to fetch him, to take him back to Turingen, back to his family home, he, ta- he calls Frau Schweigestil Mutter and sie. And sie, he, calls yeah. his, he calls his mother Mutter und du. du. And Dutzen for Adrian, using du, using the familiar you, is something he, he doesn't want to do. Like, he goes out of his way not to use that, that pronoun. Like it's, it's something that is an intimacy that he doesn't allow very many people. And he did with Zeitblom. They know, they'd known each other since children, but it was something that he really was extremely resistant to, to using. And in the case of where he did with, with Rudy um, Schwertfeger, the violinist, he starts the and, and, and Rudy's like this, like, very flirtatious person who like works on winning over Adrian over the course of years. They, they use do, do with each other. And then Rudy's shot, <laughs> Rudy's shot. <and> killed. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so to, to take it back to this point, he is picked up by his mother and taken home after the breakdown. And a number of things happen before that. They tell him that his mother is going to come get him. And he promptly tries to commit suicide. Like, he tries to drown himself. And then when they're on the train home, back to Turrigan, he attacks his mother. He has, like, a violent a violent attack. By the time they get to Turrigan, it's, it's over. It's past, you know. And it's almost as if his spirit is passed on. Like, he, he's, like, no longer, like, fully himself. But there's a great quote, um if you wouldn't mind reading from five onto six, starting with anything more fearfully 
Anything more fearfully touching or lamentable cannot be imagined than to see a free spirit, once bold and defiant, once soaring in a giddy arc above an astonished world, now creeping back to his mother's arms. But my conviction, resting on unequivocal evidence, is that the maternal experiences from so tragic and wretched a return in all its grief, some appeasement as well. The Icarus flight of the hero's son, the steep ascent of the male escaped from her outgrowth, her outgrown care, is to a mother an error both sinful and incomprehensible. In her heart, with secret anger, she hears the austere, estranging words, Woman, what have I to do with thee? And when he falls and is shattered, she takes him back, the poor dear child, to her bosom, thinking nothing else than that he would have done better never to have gone away. Yeah, so mom's catching some strays from Thomas Mann in, in this novel. That the the real the real desire of the mother is to it's it's actually okay that the child's broken as long as it comes back to the maternal bosom and is under her care and sort of dominated this way. Really sort of foreshadows like kind of nineteen fifties Freudianism in, in the US, I guess. Yeah, for kids, sure. Like, Strong <laughs> Freud vibes here. Yes. But but like a, a very particular kind of Freudianism that like was dominant in the nineteen fifties in US psychoanalysis that like yeah, like it had this very sort of misogynistic turn to it. The other thing that it's like is, you know, if as you may recall from Goethe's Faust, the end of Faust two the salvific force, the force of redemption is is the, the eternal feminine, das ewige Weibliche. And so like there's also these primordial mothers in Faust 2 and like the heavenly mothers who take care of everything. And it seems to be, again, like engaging with an older Faust tradition and critically engaging with it. It's like, oh, Goethe, you think that das ewige Weibliche is going to save us all? Well, this is this is the this is what we have with the like a vibe like we have like this we have a suicide attempt and a violent attack and then a broken man like that's what that's what that does uh and i think we you know we don't have to accept obviously zeitblom or mon's characterization of the mother uh, here <laughs> i mean like it's 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 like pretty it's pretty nietzschean like this sort of resistance to like the it's a sort of misogyny basically that he's expressing. And of course, Adrian's breakdown is like, we talked about this last time. It's like, is like Nietzsche's breakdown. He like Nietzsche has this breakdown has been taken in by his sister for decades. So like there's a lot of deliberate, I'd say parallelism there too. But I think this, this kind of gets back to the, 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 the analogy or the comparison with the Faust story. Like, what does it mean that he doesn't go to hell? He goes back to his mom's house. yeah um the infantilization is one other angle we can we can get at this we've talked a little bit about what the figure of the mother means in that uh decline and and return and sheltering but what does it mean that he is becomes childlike and does it harken back to the the scenes with echo with the, the child that he you know, functions as his child, but was not his child, um, whom he so adored, yeah, and that, that he becomes point. childlike later. I don't know. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, I know, like, and it relates to something else that is going on in the novel, that, like, when someone does something destructive, they become, like, the thing that they're destroying. And, of course, like, it's not even settled, like, whether, like, Adrian's responsible for Echo's death. It's like spinal meningitis, right? Like we, so we have this like fight still about like what's really doing what in the novel, but he thinks it's him, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that, that that sort of connection to childish childlikeness is 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 really key and really interesting. Um, so we talk, you know, what it means like whether this is hell or not. I guess I want to ask a question that that kind of comes up a lot, and like. There's, we saw this in the discussion, like when, when Adrian's talking to the devil and he's like, I know how I'm going to beat you devil. Like I understand, I like know the way to, you know, to find repentance and forgiveness and total abnegation and total debasement. Like that's how, that's my way out. And the devil is like, well, if you're trying to do that on purpose, it's not going to work because it doesn't count then, you know, like you think you're so smart, but it's not going to work. The question of what is salvation 
and redemption is like something that comes up again and again in this novel. And what makes it all the weirder is that Adrian, the question of Adrian's salvation or redemption in the moment of profound hopelessness is paired with Germany's like that. It's not just Adrian. It's also like, this is about Germany's moment of total despair and nihilism. And yet there's supposedly there's a the glimmer of hope when, when all hope is gone kind of thing. And this is actually, this is a part, a description of Adrian's uh, lamentation of Dr. Faust, where this theme comes up a bit. I'll just read this a little bit. At the end of this work of endless lamentation, softly above the reason and with the speaking unspokenness given to music alone, it touches the feelings. I mean the closing movement of the piece where the choir loses itself and which sounds like the lament of God over the lost state of his world. Like the creator's rueful, I have not willed it. Here, towards the end, I find that the uttermost accents of mourning are reached, the final despair achieves a voice, and, I will not say it, it would mean to disparage the uncompromising character of the work, its irremediable, irremediable anguish to say that it affords, down to its very last note, any other cons- consolation than what lies in voicing it, in simply giving sorrow words, in the fact, that is, that a voice is given the creature for its woe. No, this dark tone poem permits up to the very end no consolation, appeasement, transfiguration. But take our artist paradox. Grant that expressiveness, expression as lament, is the issue of the whole construction. Then may we not parallel with it another, a religious one, and say too, though only in the lowest whisper, that out of the sheerly irremediable hope might germinate. It would be but a hope beyond hopelessness, the transcendence of despair, not betrayal to her, but the miracle that passes belief. For listen to the end, listen with me. One group of instruments after another retires, and what remains as the work fades on the air is the high G of a cello, the last word, the last fainting sound, slowly dying in a pianissimo fermata. Then nothing more, silence and night. But that tone which vibrates in the silence, which is no longer there, to which only the spirit hearkens, and which was the voice of mourning, is no more. It changes its meaning. It abides as a light in the night. So we're play- So even at the level of the music that Adrian's composing, we're, we're seeing his attempt, it seems, to try to find a moment of redemption, a moment of hope and utter hopelessness. This kind of paradoxical mystical note and he says you know what do i find really interesting is he says when he's describing the music to the 30 people who come to watch his mental breakdown he's like it doesn't work i can't cheat the system i'm too clever by half it's not gonna work but like for me it's interesting that zeitblom's like you see it in the music the music does it you know and i i just i wonder like what you think about how we should consider the theme of salvation at the end like and i and i thought about this because it, it reminded me of of mysticism of christian mysticism that like like despair and suffering and burning and feeling hell are like part of like the dark night of the soul of the soul you know like dark part of the ascent in a certain way in a lot of mystical theologies that i've seen and I, I don't know, like, do you see these sort of mystical motifs or like what, like, how should we understand salvation or redemption in this novel from at least this part we've been looking at? I mean, I think those strands of the mystical tradition present something that's already structurally part of Christianity, which is that salvation and redemption are always already located in despair. That's where they live in. And so when I'm reading this description of the musical articulation of a hope that's beyond hope, especially this last high G that resonates after the sound is gone. You still hear it. It's like um, there's a sense in, there's a sense in which it's not possible to write full despair without something escaping that is yeah, a yeah, form yeah. of what we would call hope. Right. Um, that may because be the you're, best you're I can representing do. It. You're rep- it's crazy because you're trying to represent it aesthetically. It's not just despair. It's like the facsimile of despair in music. And so you still have this work and this effort to capture something that 
the beauty of that struggle to capture it is like and to actually represent it in a way that feels real like somehow yeah like you say like release let something leak out or something yeah i don't know oh that is quite revealing to me um there's a one of the tellings of the greek myth of oh man pandora Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different ways that it gets told but the the box gets open and all these horrors get released on the world hope either gets trapped in some tellings or i think there are variations of that though um but let's let's leave the one that i know which is hope gets trapped in the box sure um it, this feels like hope still exists in some way almost in spite of itself um that I find really interesting. Uh, it, there is an attempt to represent it, but he can't do it to um, our, our, the character of our composer, of Adrian, trying to represent Hope musically, but knowing that he can't because it comes too close to representing his own unattainable salvation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, goodness. I might be in over my head now. Um, this... The the uh, the appearance uh, of the ghost of hope I find very interesting. Yeah. yeah, how do you how would you relate that to um, what parts of mystical theology are you thinking of here? Are you thinking of the relation between cataphasis and apophasis, for for example, or something else when you're thinking about hope? Well, in that's despair? certainly that certainly does because the high G like you still hear it after it's gone. But so it's, it's like extinguished, but you can like there's the absence of something. So there is that apophasis part, but I also meant the sense that like one of the themes that, that Zeitblom comes back to when talking about Adrian and talking about Germany is that in the pits of despair in like, like the, like, you know, where the danger is there, the saving power is also to quote, Hooterlin, like that, they're that, that re- hitting rock bottom is like this mystical experience that like actually has a moment of redemption in it. That <laughs> oh, I, I get that mm-hmm. seems like Meister Eckhart or something, or I, I don't know. But it's the idea that like you have to go through hell to go to heaven, which makes it sound like a stupid postcard or something. But like, <laughs> like a, you know, <laughs> on your first communion, you have to go through hell to get to heaven. Um, but <laughs> but uh, but this like that you that the the mystic. Like I, we were reading Angela Foligno for class recently, and like she like is miserable for stretches of like she feels horrible, and like she feels like not just because she sees herself as like execrable and damnable, but like she's also feeling Christ's pain, and she's convinced that she's gonna be sent to hell, and like just like all this doubt and like despair is like seems almost scripted into the the ascent of the soul somehow in in the tradition. Yes. Well, uh, to dumb things down considerably, um, this is a podcast. It is. We, we locate, yeah, we locate resurrection in, um, torture and death in this moment of utter abjection. That's, that's the, the Christianity. (laughs) That's Christian. That's Christianity. (laughs) Ding. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm not I'm not totally surprised by this, but it's a much more difficult dance expressed in this passage where it's like a fictional musical work yeah. inside inside a, a, no, a novel. It's which actually is for a me. Novel. It's the best. It's the best example of it in the novel, like because I can actually understand what he's saying. Like uh, sometimes I'm just like, oh, it's a little over my head. But I think one of the things about this where Adrian's like, I can't do it because I'm trying to do it. Like I'm trying to use my artistic skills to 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 represent hope and hopelessness. This is contraposed in the novel or contrasted with with Echo. Like so, there are moments where the characters hear Echo praying, and he has like these marvelous prayers. Like his prayers are like he's like a four year old, and he's like praying for he's praying for all the creatures in the planet, and he's praying for everyone, and like he's like sort of like he's like having like this sort of mystical like you know, sort of pantheistic prayer for creation. And like Adrian and, and Severus are just like totally like flabbergasted by this. And they fight, they're like, they ask his parents after he's dead. They're like, well, did you teach him these prayers? And like, no, not at all. Um, and so I'll, I'll just read this, this passage where they're talking about the prayers outside the door. Adrian asked, what do you say to this theological speculation? He prays for all creation expressly in order that he himself may be included. 
Should a pious child know that he serves himself and that he prays for others? Surely the unselfishness is gone so soon as one sees that it is of use. And then Zeitblom says, You are right that far, I replied. But he turns the thing into unselfishness as so soon as he may not pray only for himself, but does so for all of us. Yes, for us all, Adrian said softly. Anyhow, we are talking as though he had thought these things up himself. Have you ever asked him where he learned them, from his father, from whom? The answer was, oh, no, I'd rather let the question rest and assume that he would not know. But so in, in other words, you're saying like you're looking at this child and the question for me, it's this question of like, can you intentionally do something that saves yourself? Like what? Like and they're looking at the child and the child is like praying for himself as part of creation unselfishly but in a way that's also like redeems that, that that they see as like you know redeeming him and adrian's like does this count is this is this cheating like it's he's like going through he's like talking about himself he's like can yes. you pray for yourself like and mm-hmm. and i thought i think it's and and of course like the child's innocent and adrian is you know less so the, less so <laughs> he says he says in his his confession that he's married to the devil which i thought was is, is a striking thing uh, but yeah, this question like, can you in the in the like your skill and art of representing this stuff like, do you do you forfeit the benefits of what you're representing, or do you do you have to be a child to be able to construct these sentences and propositions in a way that is not of use? Like you're not using it to 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 include yourself, and like this is like a question that he just really struggles with. And it doesn't settle for us whether he has any kind of salvation or redemption in the end. There are a few clues, though, I would say. There are a few clues. And, like, maybe you picked up on this. I mean, Zeitblom compares him to Christ pretty steadily throughout. He he says he's got, like, the ecce homo face at certain points. He says, he, and this is not just about, even about, Adrian, he says, oh, like the Faust story ends with the friends, like the disciples in this kind of Last Supper. Like the end of the Faust story in the traditional Faust story is almost a Last Supper story. And like that means like Adrian himself is also like Faust. So he's like Christ, you know, whatever. Uh, He's the devil's monk. And there's also so like there's a lot of Christ comparisons to Adrian and again, like sort of like getting at the like, can you be innocent and guilty at the same time thing? But when he, all of his like cool city people friends flee before his mental breakdown and all like he's surrounded by his like friendly lady friends start protecting him. Frau Schweigestel says, uh, she's talking to the frenemies. Let me see the backs of all ye all and sundry city folks all with not a snitch of understanding. Talked about the everlasting mercy, poor soul. I don't know if it goes as far as that, but human understanding, believe me, that does. And so, I like. What do you what What do you make of that? I think that's. I I thought I I caught that reading it the second time. I was like, oh, that seems really important <laughs> for under for trying to think about this question. Um, I want to point to a couple of other uh, moments that are surrounding this one. Um, at the beginning of that chapter, it opens with this. I'm going to read. Um, This is mm, chapter 47. Watch with me. In his cantata, Adrian might, if he chose, transform that cry of human and divine agony into the masculine pride and self-confidence of his Faust's sleep quietly and fear nothing. But the human remains, after all, the instinctive longing, if not for aid, then certainly for the presence of human sympathy, the plea, forsake me not, be about me at my hour. And so he has this party, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the, we are comparing him to Christ in Gethsemane there. Um, And then later, uh, the epilogue begins with, it is finished, (laughs) the last words of Christ. (laughs) Like, it's not subtle, um, but very enjoyable. It also Um, ties into the, 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 the misogyny too, because like the, the, like the, the wedding at Cana part where the, it's like the, you know, you know, like woman, what is that? What does that have to do with me? Thing, like yes. it, it's, it's that sort of yes. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Woo, yeah, runs deep, runs deep. Yeah. Um, so here, there's this. She's sort of dismissing um, this like high theological talk about 
um, whether he gets saved or not. Um, and she dismisses the culture of the people. There's, it's a classed moment, this, yeah. this uh, comment from Frau um, Schweigestil. It's, so, it's, it's written in very extreme. It's like written in dialect. It's like hard. To, it's like it's hard to read for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's they did a good job, I think, because she seems like yeah, a real yeah. like it's Cockney basically. Here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, let me see the backs of y'all and sundry city folk all with not a snitch of understanding. So the contrast between you've got all of this sophistication and, you, you know, your fancy people, but you don't really understand what's going on. Um, and she dismisses theology here. I th- the way I read her last comment talked about the everlasting mercy, poor soul. I don't f- I don't know if it goes as as far as that, but human understanding, believe me, that does. Well, it's a moment where I'd love to read the German um, because it doesn't quite track for me as an English sentence, to be honest. Um, but that human understanding is the extent of whatever we're talking about, um, and not theological mercy. I don't know what God's going to do with him, but he deserves to be understood like on humanist grounds is how I interpreted that. What just in terms yeah, of making sense yeah. of the sentence, is that what you got from it as well? Yeah, it, it is. I want to actually now look at the sentence in the original just to, to compare it, but I do think like right, I think you're totally right that she's like we need to actually just this whole theological speculation is a waste right now. It doesn't matter. What matters is like, like compassion. <laughs> what matters is love. Right. And I think understanding like stands in for that. Mm-hmm. Like what matters is like, you know, you need to like give a fuck about this person instead of like treating it like a spectacle, you know? Um, and that's why she and the other like, like devotees are there and everyone else runs away because they don't actually care about him because they're there for cultural professional like status reasons. You know, they don't, you know, which makes them incapable of understanding the humanity of the situation. And for me, it's a question. It's like, is Mon saying that the question, like, in some cases to me, it seems like Mon is very invested in the question of redemption and salvation, especially for Germany. But this is a moment where it almost seems as if he's, he's saying that's the wrong question. That, like, th- or two- is he just, or is he locating redemption in a different in that, plane? In that. Yeah. Right. I think, I think, that's, I think that's, that's probably it. I think that's probably it. Yeah. I think because I think that's like that's in some ways like I was also wondering like is the is the is the quote unquote biography the fictionalized biography is that how Severus is trying to redeem trying to redeem Adrian Leverkusen like he's like because I'm gonna tell the story and like people are gonna understand and they're gonna play his music and like in uh. I'm going to send it to America and they're going to understand him in America where Thomas Mann happens to live and Germany's going to be rebuilt. And like maybe in a new, in a new Germany, which has ominous under overtone saying that word, that phrase, um, <laughs> maybe in a new Germany, people will actually understand the, the gifts and what this person actually accomplished musically and like what he went through personally. I think I, that that, I love the way that we articulate redemption and hope and despair, all of these things across sort of different planes here. One, there's a theological conversation. Two, there's this literary um, frame story. There's the, the, bio- the, the biography that we're you know reading through that is, that is the novel, more or less. Um, theology, frame novel, and the music itself. Three different ways of expressing. And it's like a strong push. The sections I read, at least, were a strong push for these ideas that were once housed in a certain kind of speculative theology um, are insufficient. And they find their best expression, which is always already incomplete, etc., both in the music and then also in this, um, these attempts, which are always... Um, always fail, but are still better in literary form than in theological. Mm-hmm. Huh. I think, yeah, I think that's probably, I think that's very close to, that's how I would understand it too. Because Zeit, Zeitblom is like, I'm a Catholic, but I'm a humanist Catholic. Like, I'm not, you know, that's kind of his frame of reference is to say like, good letters, good literature, good culture is like, what is worth living and dying for, 
right? And and that's like so I think that tracks with his personality too and his his perspective his his insight. She says, Schweigestell, uh, Max, das Weiter kommt alle miteinander. Ihr habt ja kein Verständnis net, ihr Stadtleut, und da gehört auch Verständnis her. Viel hat er von ewigen Gnaden geredet, der arme Mann, und ich weiß net, ob die langt, aber al Rex, ein menschliches Verständnis, glaubt es mir, das lenkt fürs all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that it's, it's pretty good translation. Um, <laughs> it's the, the part that I don't quite get is the, like, going as far as that, and the, yeah. that this does go well, as far, it's, there's, like, a distance. Can you help me with that part? Yeah, the word is, is um, langen or lengt for langen. Oh, to go that far. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's pretty, it's pretty literal, maybe too literal in a certain yeah. way. Langen's like to be sufficient. Yeah. 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 So it's, 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 it's fine. And I think it kind of catches the tone. Um, Verständnis is like, that's, you know, yeah. understand, you know, that, that, that's, that's very clear. So, yeah. But I think that's totally right about the sort of humanistic redemptive quality. The question, I guess we're 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 at an hour here i think one thing to sort of tie it back into the theme of of evil and the devil maybe to close out i can't help but comparing this with mephisto this novel comes out very close to the death of klaus mann who is thomas mann's you know actual son we're writing all about dying sons here and you know or, or ersatz sons you know with nepomuk like his actual son does die and he seems pretty cold about it actually when when it happens uh which is yeah uh, a thing but yeah but what Thomas Mann does is we have Adrian Leverkusen's life and his and Leverkusen's belief that he made a deal with the devil and that's why all this horrible stuff happens and then when Zeitblom's talk is recounted is sort of locating himself in history and he's like oh Germany made a deal with the devil Germany is going you know going through hell Germany might have its hope of redemption and I find it very strange that we have Germany as going, Germany's made a Faustian bargain and we have Leverkusen who's made a Faustian bargain. Adrian is a weird stand-in for Germany. He, in a, in a way that also Nietzsche is a weird stand-in for Germany. Like they're both like mm-hmm. kind of like German skeptics. Like, a, like Adrian's very scornful of like the kind of patriotic militarism of World War One. Like he, you know, like Zeitblom volunteers for the army and Adrian's like, are you stupid? You know, like, so he, he's not a reactionary. He doesn't, he's not a proto-fascist. He does have a kind of primitivist streak and an irrationalist streak to his ideas about composition and art. And I think that people like Mann and maybe others equate that with or link that to fascism in a certain way. But on the other hand, there are characters in the novel who are like actually fascistic in a way that Leverkusen never really seems to approach from my my estimation. So I find it so I find it a weird pairing, especially when you contrast it with Hendrik Hupfgen as like the unscrupulous Mephisto playing Nazi sellout actor. And I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense as a stand in for the Germans of Nazi Germany, the people who like saw that they could get their, their toast buttered through the Nazi regime and stuck around because it was like materially benefited them and and benefited their careers. Again, this theme of career that it was about careerism in, in that. And so I just, you know, I find, and I'm just putting all the cards on the table, I guess, like I find Klaus Mann's model of, the Faustian evil, like more compelling and accurate than, than Thomas Mann's. Well, I feel like he is, he can't write his son's, you know, work. I feel like it's sort of a reaction. He, I think he's like, that's yeah. too obvious. And the way that this comparison works yeah. at the end, he thinks of as more subtle, like uh, we don't well, need to write one where the guy is a total sellout. Anyone who makes a deal with the devil, that's good enough for me to make some comments about Germany at the end and to have a more sophisticated and interesting character in the meantime to do more than just um, a kind of political uh, yeah. narrative. I don't know. I think, that, I think that's it. I think with the difference, I think what you helped me see there, I think the difference is that Thomas Mann's more invested in the idea of Germany as a cultural power yes. than Klaus Mann. Good. 
Yes, that seems I think that's the, dip, that's the difference. Uh, like, yes. That, that Thomas Mann's invested in, like, the mythology of German kultur, you know, like that he's, like, still bought in. And so he has to kind of, this is his way of kind of mourning it. And Klaus Mann's, like, got a much, has got a colder eye, a sharper eye when it comes to, because Klaus Mann never had the success or the recognition because, he, you know, the whole, like, nepotism problem, you know, the sort of, he could never be taken seriously as a writer because he was Thomas Mann's son, you know, <laughs> that was, part, you know, so he never had, like, the accolades and the attention. Like, Thomas Mann was, like, an institution. Klaus Mann was, like, his, his fail son, but who was, like... Yeah. A good writer, you know. Well, I will say for Thomas Mann that here, for someone so devoted to, you know, Deutsche Kultur or however, <laughs> I don't speak German, but here I'm trying good, good to enough. German culture, to German culture. Um, he clearly longs for some kind of redemption. But what I will give him props for is understanding how in conventional terms, that is not possible. And so he's reaching for it in these really interesting ways um, in this work, which I appreciate a lot, that there cannot be a straightforward um, redemption story. Uh, and so you have to go about it otherwise. And that's what made this such an interesting, compelling story for me. One last comment on madness. Um, did you notice this section um, toward the end where he talks about dementia? And that's, um, he's gone back to his mother at this point, and he says, uh, this is our, this Severus, our narrator, writes, after all, the word dementia originally meant nothing else than this aberration from self, self-alienation, um, as he describes this burnt-out husk of the personality of his friend, Adrian. He's not really there anymore. Dementia as alienation of the self, I cannot hear alienation of for alienation from the self without thinking about ecstasy, about religious ecstasy, which does come up in certain moments uh, elsewhere. Um, and that crossover I found quite yeah. uh, compelling. Well, well, and I think that's it too. And that's part of, like, Adrian refers to the devil as religiosus. Like, he's like, yes. he, that actually going into, and, and the devil says this himself that in their interview in the middle, like, he's actually the most religious character in the yes. novel. Like that it's actually to actually participate authentically in spirituality. Mon seems to be suggesting means taking this kind of spiritual risk with your soul. That is like making a deal with the devil. Right. And, and I think that, right. Like it's not a coincidence that Adrian writes his best, most interesting, most powerful refutation of the fucking ninth symphony at the edge of complete self-alienation and madness, right? Like that, that I think you're right. And I think that that's both about on a spiritual level, but also the spirituality is trapped in the aesthetic representation, right? He can't feel it himself with like some kind of confidence. It has to be refracted into this, this work of art. So I think, yeah, I think that's totally right. <laughs> you, you may drop your mic, Klaus. That was awesome. <laughs> Well, I can't drop it too hard or else we can't podcast anymore. But yeah, okay, good point, good point. Yes, we need these. We need these microphones. All right. Yeah. Well, to our listeners, thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Board, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.